Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Hello listeners. No, I'm not Danny V. My name is Cassie Hamer. I'm the author of two novels and it's my pleasure today to be doing a podcast takeover with Tabitha Byrne. Tabitha, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today, Cassie. It's great to chat to you. I had a pleasant surprise upon hearing you were doing the interview. It's lovely. <laughs> well, I really wanted to talk to you about this book because I wanted to get inside your head because your imagination and your brain seems a really fascinating place to be, I have to say. I mean, this book, you know, it's called The, Imag the Emporium of Imagination and you really put all your imaginative powers to work in this novel, I have to say. Um, now, look, instead of getting you to explain what The Emporium actually is, I'm just going to start by reading a little section from yeah. the book. Okay, so, mm. so the Emporium is a bustle of a place. People come and go. Some see magic everywhere. They have phone messages and answer their phone when it rings. Other people see less magic and more a commonplace shop selling quirky vintage wares. It depends on what they expect to see. A person looking for the impossible will find it. One who isn't cannot. So tell me, Tabitha, do you believe in the impossible? <laughs> Absolutely, I believe in the impossible, yeah. Um, I think that's why I'm so obsessed with magical realism because that line between what could what could happen and what couldn't happen for me is um, a blurry line that needs to be constantly pushed. So, yeah, I do believe in the impossible. I think um, my life is a bit of a reflection of the impossible. You know, I, I came from... Um, pretty humble beginnings and, and also pretty traumatic beginnings. And the fact that I actually, you know, um, have a wonderful marriage and, and a, a gorgeous family to me is actually impossible. Um, and the fact too, you know, that I have 
books out in this world seems to me to be something that is quite impossible. If you go looking at statistics for those who are published and published with traditional publishing houses and then again published with the big five, you know, you're getting into some pretty low um, percentages there. And that to me sounds like impossibility and magic right there. So I kind of think ordinary magic exists in the world everywhere we look. Yeah, how would you define ordinary magic? Because the things that you're describing there seem to be actually testament to a lot of the emotional work that you have done and the emotional labour that you've undertaken to deal with your past. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Cassie. And, and part of that is true. So ordinary magic also comes with a lot of human effort. But I think there's something otherly, otherly about ordinary magic because, you know, if hard work and dedication and persistence were all it took to get books out in this world, then a whole lot of people would have books out in this world that don't. Um, if hard work and persistence were all it took to have great marriages and wonderful families, then they would be prevalent too. So hard work is not an indicator of whether or not things are going to work out. There is just that other worldly connection you know where you know sometimes you just you're blessed you know and it's not all about what we can do there's there's quite a lot that's out of our hands you know there's plenty of women out there you know who work every day um and things are just not lining up the way you know that they want so I say hang in there to those people but there is that ordinary magic that I think if we look for it you know in this world we can see it everywhere so the Emporium of Imagination, it's not, it's not exactly a piece of ordinary magic. It's a piece of high magic, I would say. Like reading the book, I was really transported to that place, almost of being a child again and watching movies and reading books like um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because the Emporium is that kind of a, a wondrous place and it, it's, it's not serving up chocolate and delight for kids, but it's satisfying huge emotional needs, I suppose. So people who go into the Emporium find things that they need emotionally to find in their lives. And, and it's quite a fantastical place in the fact that it magically pops up one night uh, in the town of Boona and the custodian, Erlitage Hubert Umbre, is dying and he needs to find a new custodian for the Emporium. Can you tell me why this book, why this particular subject matter? Yeah, so the story started for me with the characters. I had especially little young Enoch. I had his voice really strong in my head um, and Erlitage joined him not that long after. And um, interestingly enough, it's always the characters that are closest in age to me that come last and are the hardest mm. to write. So Anne was much later. But I actually was reading one day um, about this thing called the wind phone and it just was absolutely fascinating to me. It's this Japanese gardener, Mr. Ituru, who actually built this just beautiful garden on his property. And he also made this phone booth. So he built an actual phone booth. And inside the phone booth, he placed this rotary phone, disconnected rotary phone. But he was using the phone to contact his cousin who had passed on the year before. And it was just his way of working through his own grief. Now that in itself is an ordinary magic as far as I'm concerned. But then there was the amazingly devastating tsunami of 2011, which hit the coast of Japan. And his actual village was devastated. 
of the people from his village lost their lives, which is massive if you think about how, you know, heavily densely populated um, Japan is. His his garden, his phone booth was spared because they were quite a way back and, and elevated. So he opened them up to the public there in Japan for people to come and just use that phone booth if they wanted to, um, to talk to their own loved ones and thousands of people took him up on it. And they came and they talked and they believed that their grief was carried on the wind, so hence the word wind phone. Um, after the success of that or the need for that, I suppose, he opened it up worldwide. And so today people from around the world in their tens of thousands actually flocked to that phone booth. Now, for me, that just spoke so powerfully of how our imaginations work to heal us and how even in the ordinary world that we all know and love or live in, <laughs> maybe some of us have a love-hate relationship with it, um, but our imaginations are at work already and that impossible actually exists. So they were having conversations and obviously no one was speaking back to them. But being a writer, especially a writer of magical realism, that was just, you know, a red flag to a writer, if you like, or a red flag to a bull. And I was like, that is too, that's too amazing not to go in a book. And I wondered, of course, what if, you know, so what if that phone was not disconnected and what if you could actually speak to somebody? Um, so that was the next layer that came for me in the story. And when I wrote that in, the whole book changed for me and, and we have the Emporium as we know it. So yeah. That is amazing because the Emporium is a place um, where you can go and if you get a message, you can pick up a phone in the Emporium mm. and you get to have that vital last conversation with a loved mm. one, which is it's something actually I've often thought about. I think, you know, in in grief there's, um, you know, the, the common theory is that there's five stages of grief and, and one of those is bargaining, I think, and, and it sort of comes into that idea of, oh, if, if I could just have that one last conversation, I would do X, Y, Z to sort of um, make the bargain with mm. that person, I suppose. Um, did that story that you're talking about, the one about the wind phone, did that come to you at a particularly relevant time in your life? Because I know that in the last couple of years you, you've experienced profound grief and and sometimes the world does have that this magical way of working that story ideas come to you when you need them did that happen in this case yeah absolutely with all of my books it's the character voices that come first and the magic layers are always last um, people were amazed in the first one a lifetime of impossible days that the ocean was the very last thing to to front up and yet if you read the book the ocean is integral. Without it, you actually don't have a story. Um, so it was just, it was no different in this one. And I actually, this is why I believe in ordinary oh. magic. As I write, I just, I don't plot. I go with what I have and I just trust that the right things at the right time will show up for me and that I will be able to incorporate them as I need them. So, yeah, I was in the process at the time that I wrote the book of um something quite personal my grandmother was actually diagnosed with cancer um, and for me that was absolutely devastating you know of course uh, her diagnosis of cancer and her being my grandmother was you know enough in itself but for me my nanny was a was was so much more she was really for me she was home um, she was that safe safe space where I was just loved just for being me and she really was one of the few people in my life um, 
overall that for that for which that space has existed and as a child she really was the only one so she was such a powerful woman for me for me to understand that she was not going to be with me anymore was mind-blowing and I couldn't get my head around it um so as as I was writing the book I began to give you know the multi-faceted and, and hugely complex emotions that come with guilt with grief one of them which is guilt um too much practice in the book for them to sort of work through and interesting you mentioned you know about the five stages of grief um yeah I I the grief is just so different for every person and there really are some people don't experience any of those stages some people might experience one or two often in fact more often than not they're not it's not linear you know grief is this it's like a ball of wool that a cat has unraveled that's grief and I just wanted to explore that because we just don't talk about grief very well in Western culture and we don't often support each other really well in it either. It can be a really lonely experience. So, yeah, the magic of that phone came to me whilst I was grieving the fact that my nanny was going to leave us and it was just a piece of the puzzle that just it fitted and it was that powerful piece of the puzzle for me too. Um. There is a piece of writing advice which is that you should write from the wound and I definitely think that you are that kind of writer and in your first book it was about childhood trauma and the wound that that leaves and in this book it's definitely about grief and the emotional wound of that. What is it that you wanted to say about grief? You mentioned there that it's very individual for every person, but what have you personally learned about the experience? Yeah, I think, yeah, it is really personal for every person. I think what I've learned about the experience is that we often don't know what to say when when someone's experiencing grief. So, you know, there's the, we have in Western culture, we have a funeral, um, we may have a wake, we have a short period of time where it's acceptable, if you like, to talk about the grief and to actually be grieving. But, you know, once those the flowers from the funeral dry up, once people stop coming around to visit, um, it's usually two or three weeks after the event. And then and then what? You know, the, the people stop bringing around the meatloaf and you're alone. And I think a lot of people don't want to talk about it because they don't want to upset the person or because they're not sure what to say. And whilst I understand that, what it does is sends an unconscious message to those who are grieving that their grief is not something that's okay to talk about, that it makes other people uncomfortable and that really, you know, they just need to grieve quietly or by themselves. And that is just intensely lonely. Um, So as I was writing the book, I wanted to talk about, you know, what if we chose connection in grief? What if we just decided to be friends, to just front up and go, hey, I'm here. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. You know, if not, that's fine, but I just want you to know that you're not alone. And so that's when I decided to put in the owner's guide to grieving in the Emporium of Imagination, because for me, I wanted to see what would happen if people had an opportunity to talk about it. And so in the owner's guide to grieving, it's just a little book that travels around the township of Boona and it invites people to write about their own grief and powerfully as well to read about other people's grief so they can see for the first time they're not alone. And what happens is that the township of Boona, the people start to write to each other in the book. And so we start to see this connection and we start to see the fact that 
grief is something that can unite us, that even if we haven't experienced the specific loss that someone else has, we do understand what it is to have lost and therefore we are more alike in our grief than we are different. So, yeah, for me that was something that um, I really felt was important to open up and and to start making grief way less of a taboo. Hmm. What what conversation would you have with your nanny if you could bring go to the emporium and ring her? What would you say? <laughs> oh, what would I say? You know, it would probably be less about what I would say and the fact that I would just love to hear her voice. Um, one of the things that happens as someone passes, and my nanny has been gone now just over a year, is you start to forget how they actually sounded, like the quality and the tones of their voice. And it's something that you think you're never going to forget, but you do. I'd love to just hear her voice and I'd love to just hear her say my name. You know, she always called me Tabitha Ann. I'd love to hear her say my name and just to have, just to know that she's okay, um, that wherever she is, she's she's happy and you know, that she's looking down on me. And these things I believe in my heart, but I'd love to hear her say them. Mm. And you showed, you posted a beautiful video the other day of your nanny um, opening the box of your first book, um, which was beautiful. And the pride was just flowing out of her. It was amazing. <laughs> what do you think she would make of this book? I think she'd be extremely, extremely proud. For um, anyone who hasn't read it, when you do, there is a character in the book actually called Nanny and that's no accident. It is exactly a homage or an honouring of my own Nanny and I think she'd like that. I think she'd be all over that. Um, I think she'd be <laughs> pretty chuffed to see that she'd actually made it into literature <laughs> and I, I do believe she'd be proud. I think she would be oh, proud. Oh, God, she would be. And it was interesting <laughs> that you just mentioned that she used to call you Tabitha Ann because... Um, the character uh, in the book, um, one of the point of view characters is Anne and she's mm -hmm. the one who's the granddaughter to Nanny. So is Anne the one in the book with whom you most closely identify and, and do you base characters on real people or are they just an amalgam of people you know plus yourself plus your imagination? Yeah, I think probably the latter. I do I do clearly put a lot of myself into the books and Anne is definitely carrying a lot of my own emotions and a lot of my own <clears throat> mixed up feelings and I certainly gave Anne a lot of my own woundings to work through. Um, however, Anne is also Anne. She's not me in other ways. She does things that I would never do and she thinks she thinks through things in ways I wouldn't think through things. Um so when I write my characters, yeah, because there's the three boys in the book too. There's, you know, Enoch, who is a point of view character who's 10, but then he's got his brothers, Jonas, who's 14, and little Nipper, um, who's I think five in the book, if I'm remembering correctly. And, you know, those three boys are also pretty loosely based off my own three boys because, you know, I just live with, you know, this comedic circus around me. Um, so I don't purposely just go, you know, this, this is, oh, my dogs. Sorry, Cassie. No, no, I've got the same issue. So sorry, <laughs> listeners, you're, you're hearing a fair bit of dog growling and barking in the background. I hope you don't mind. Oh, dear. It's the joys of home interviews, isn't it? Um, yeah, so... I do think to myself about just stopping one as he runs through. Um, I do think to myself about how 
the characters in my life, um, just the power of them, their quirkiness, their their bigness. You know, my middle son has got this huge heart and we call him the multicoloured crayon in the box of life. So, yeah, definitely. You'll see pieces of me and pieces of my kids all the way through my books. I mean, your book is a, it's a really hopeful book but on a really difficult subject matter and I'm just wondering what's it like for you to marinate in that challenging subject matter for the extended period that writing a book requires? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, as you would know, you have to be literally obsessed with what it is that you're writing because you're going to be spending a lot of time in that world and I think that's why for me my books are so emotionally close to my own emotional truth because I actually use my writing as a way to understand what I think and feel about the world Um, and I don't make any apologies for that you know I think that's one of the strengths of my book is that you get quite a lot of me on the page therefore the work is quite vulnerable um and quite, and there's there's an authenticness or an authenticity to the book, which I think extends invitations to readers, um, you know, to join and and to perhaps take that story and make it their own. And certainly, that's been my you know my experience when readers read my work and then email me or message me and and just say how much it's meant to them because they saw the truth of parts of their own existence in that story. So. For me, it's it's both joyful, necessary, but also can be really difficult because obviously you're sitting with your own emotions and the truth of who you are, and that can be uncomfortable sometimes. But for me, that's the power of story. Mm. Something that you've spoken about on other interviews is that you live with bipolar 2, which is a, a mental illness. Um, I've had some personal experience with a loved one who's dealing with a similar thing. It's almost, to me, like a chronic illness that requires ongoing management in in various ways. Are there periods, like how do you manage a chronic illness with writing? Are are there periods when it's more difficult than others? Because I think there's a lot of people out there who who do suffer various illnesses um, that make it very difficult for them to function, especially creatively. And I'm just wondering if you practice special types of self-care or you understand your limits or there are times when you simply can't write and you have to be kind to yourself about that. Yeah, you've really hit the nail on the head. I think all of those things you just mentioned are absolutely true. Um, Yeah, having bipolar type 2 is really a disability. There certainly are days when the illness demands all of my attention and all of my energy and that will mean that there are times where the whole day is really dedicated to me being in bed and resting. Um, Really no different to if you were physically sick and your body shut down and you needed to be in bed all day and resting. So there are those periods of time. And that's why with my own writing, I don't have a strict routine. I actually give myself quite a bit of grace and freedom. When I'm writing, I stay connected to the story every day. I might read a bit of it or I might write a bit of it or I might just be thinking about it but I don't make myself sit at the computer and write from, say, nine till four or something like that. Two reasons. One, my imagination and creativity tend to pack up their bags the minute that anything looks like a school project. Um, And the other reason is, for me, that would be very harsh. And I think for my mental health, it wouldn't be productive. Um, So 
having a mental illness is, is kind of it's kind of twofold. One, there is the darkness that comes with it. There is the debilitating depression, um, lack of energy at times, and you know mood swings. However, there is also this intense creativity that comes with it that I cannot explain. And I have tried to explain it to other people and they really haven't understood what I was talking about. So I think it's something that you can probably only appreciate if you've been through it. But intense creativity and you make connections with things that I know other people don't connect. So it's that random connections with things that show up in my writing and provide this otherworldliness and this beauty and richness to my work that I doubt I would have if I didn't have the illness. There are also intense periods of energy and productivity. Um, Having lived with the illness now for quite some time, I've learnt to only indulge that to a certain level because that can spiral. Um, however, I've I've mostly, not always, mostly can harness that for good. And in those periods of time where I have intense energy, intense creativity, I can put up to 10,000 words on a page in a day. Um, and for me, I will let myself do that because I know there will then be days where I don't write at all for days on end so having an illness you sort of work with it you work with the fact that in some ways it's debilitating and in other ways it gives you gifts that you wouldn't have if you didn't have it um i've thought often about whether or not if if there was some magic potion where you could take away bipolar 2 would i take it i honestly don't believe that i would um it is a part of what makes tab tab and without it I think I would lose some very important things. Definitely the depth of my imagination, the way in which I randomly um, make connections and and the way in which I bring together the worlds inside my head is definitely about my illness. And I know lots of people say, I'd like to get in your head. I'd like to see your imagination. To them I say, yes, yes, there's parts of my head that you'd probably like to get involved in and have a look at. But it also comes with the flip side of that, which is not so fun. Thank you so much for sharing that insight. I think you've talked before about how grief can be an uncomfortable topic. And I think in the same way, mental illness is similar in that regard and that we need to talk about it more because so many people suffer in silence and the need for connection. Yeah, I think I just think that, uh, as you mentioned, people are uncomfortable addressing grief. They don't want to upset the other person. Is it also just because we're intrinsically afraid of dying and and we Mm. live in a fairly secular society that doesn't have a strong belief in what happens beyond the grave? Yeah, I think that's true. I think we're afraid of dying and probably even more so we're afraid of getting old. You know, we live in a culture that absolutely celebrates and honours youth and tends to not do so, you know, over a certain age, you know. Um, And I talked about that a lot in a lifetime of, of impossible days too with the older character, just how uncomfortable society is with getting old and how little we celebrate it and how little we celebrate the fact that, in fact, that getting older is is an honour and a privilege. It means we've lived so many years that we've gotten to live so many years and we have uncommon wisdom that we did not have when we were younger. And, I mean, I love hanging out with older people. I think that's why there's always an older voice in my stories. I find them so easy to write because I'm surrounded by just some gorgeous older women 
who know who they are and and think they're beautiful in their older age and I agree with them um yeah people are uncomfortable with dying and I think we don't want to think about it we somehow think perhaps if we don't think about it that it's not happening but every day it's happening you know every day we are one closer to the day where we don't have any more days left um and I think we do need to get more comfortable with that it's it's a phase of life it's a certainty you know what do they say death taxes and death and taxes yeah what the other one is yeah <laughs> is a certainty you know so in my house we talk about it you know I even spoke about it with my nanny before she died we asked her how did she want that to look what did she want done did she want to be buried did she want to be cremated what songs were special to her what meaningful things did she want said did she want flowers or not flowers and she had strong opinions about it and she was really I feel thankful for the space to talk about it and she told us don't you dare bring flowers um if you're going to bring me flowers bring me them now so I can you know enjoy them um and she didn't want to be buried you know she wanted to be cremated she had lots of things that she wanted to tell us about what she wanted when she died. And it was her way of processing the fact that she was going to die. So it was really healthy. But for us who were losing her, it was our way of knowing when she passed that we had done the things she wanted us to do. So we talk about it even in my house, you know, my husband and I are not that old. And we talk about it now. What would you want to have happen should, heaven forbid, you be taken from me early? What would you want? What would you want me to do? What thing, you know, all the stuff that people ask and wonder about once someone's died, you can talk about it before. And I know those conversations are so difficult to broach sometimes, but they're also not that difficult. I mean, we simply just said to my nanny, hey, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to talk about the fact that, you know, you are dying? Is that something you would like to talk about? She was open to it and she said, yes, you know, other people may have different answers, but we can simply ask if we stay curious in this life, instead of staying in fear, so many more conversations can happen, even around mental illness. Innocent curiosity done with respect is welcome. And even if the person doesn't want to talk about it, they have an opportunity to respectfully say, I would rather not talk about it. Um, But majority of the time when my friends or family have asked questions, it's been out of love and curiosity. And I'm happy to answer those things because where else are they going to find those answers? You know, Google is not the place to find out answers to how somebody else actually thinks and feels. People are human books and we need to read their stories and we need to ask permission to do so, you know, to to find out about what makes them them. That's how we have connection instead of fear, which leads to disconnection. You are incredibly wise and very generous with with sharing your thoughts. And I'm going to completely change pace now because um, something that you're also very generous with is your um, help and advice to other writers who are launching books. Something that really impresses me about you is the way in which you are so hands-on with the marketing of your book. Part of your campaign for launching this one was to organise an influencer campaign where you sent the most beautifully produced black cardboard boxes 
to a whole heap of people. And in each one, it was like a gift box from the Emporium and there were beautiful vintage gloves. There were little ladybirds. There were um, tea sachets. There were golden books. There were um, vintage rings. There were all these things from within the Emporium. And it was just a masterstroke of a campaign, which I know must have taken you so much work like it just frightens me to think of how much you must have put into it but can you tell me a little bit about your philosophy with marketing your books and how you decide on the right approach and you know you're with a traditional publisher a big publisher and and a lot of authors think well you know that's their job it's their job to market the book but you really take it on and I'm just wondering what your thought processes are around doing it that way. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so two things. One, the way in which I do it, I don't think is a should for every other author. The way in which I do it is because that's me. Um, I love, I, I am hugely creative and I like to express myself in more ways other than just my writing. So that comes in my marketing campaigns, for example. And I was actually collecting those vintage wares in any case and was thinking what to do with them besides just having them all around my house, um, which, you know, could have been good, but my husband did did suggest that perhaps we were drowning in them, which <laughs> I think he had a point. Uh, so I, it naturally flowed out of who I am and out of my own creativity and out of my own desire, I suppose, to immerse readers in my own imagination. So it's quite personal. I think for other authors out there who may see that and think, oh, goodness, does this mean, you know, that that's how all of us need to be doing it or am I somehow not enough because I don't do that? My answer is a profound no. Do what works for you. So if you're not into that sort of thing or you don't think marketing is your strength or you don't know what to do, you know, then, then don't. If it's going to be a stress and an anxiety and not something that you enjoy, then there are no shoulds in this world. You know, my first book, I say there are no should police. There are no should police. Um, and it won't be authentic and people won't connect with it if it's not just out of joy and love and something that is you. And it's the same with social media. I mean, I'm very active on social media. I love Instagram, particularly Instagram, but I'm also very active on Facebook. Um <clears throat> That's because I would be anyway. I mean, if I wasn't a writer, I'd be there anyway. I'd have some account with something. I know I would. I love the visualness of Instagram. I, my camera is constantly going off. I take a lot of photos. In any case, it's another way in which I express myself. So once again, that just flows out of who I am. And I like connecting with readers and I share a lot of who I am and my family on social media. Nothing that is too personal or nothing that I don't have permission to share but I do and that's once again that's that's just me if that's not you don't do it you know if if you're just happy to be on Facebook and post every now and then great do that you know that'll be authentically you and you should do that you know you should you should do you um yeah I am really hands-on with marketing and you're right I am with a big publisher and yes they do put some marketing dollars towards it most publishers will put something towards the release of books in varying degrees thereof um, but I guess I personally wanted to I don't know reach out to readers I really wanted to invite readers to not just read my books, but to join me in the fun of creativity and imagination. So that's why I'm so hands-on with it. But like I said, there are no shoulds. If that isn't you, 
don't, don't do it. If you don't have the time, you know, I write full-time. A lot of people don't write full-time. Um, they have full-time jobs and I don't think I could do half of what I do if I was actually working full-time. So there's that as well. Thank you. And I really take your point that there are no should police and I'm going to totally be hypocritical here and say, well, there are a lot of writers who listen to this podcast. Um, I don't necessarily want you to give writing advice, but maybe if there's a piece of wisdom that you could share that you think might help other people, what would it be? For me, I always, this is something I always say. When I started writing, I read a lot of how-to books, mm. which are great. I'm not against how-to books. However, if you're reading a how-to book and it isn't connecting with you or you've tried to do the things in the book and it's not working for you, for example, plotting. I got serious about my writing at a point and read how-to books and they all said about plotting and character arcs and how important all that was. And I tried and I tried for so long that one, it stifled my creativity and I actually stopped writing. And I ended up sobbing in the shower most evenings, telling my husband what a miserable uh, writer I was because here these other writers were so great and they could plot and I couldn't. So my thing that I always share to writers is whilst there is so much to learn about the craft of writing, and I do recommend that you try and learn as much about it as you can, your creativity is uniquely you. How you come to create story is going to be all about you and your imagination. And nobody, no craft book, no Google website can tell you how that will look. Maybe you'll plot a bit, maybe you'll pants you, you know, and, and be happy doing that. Maybe you'll do something else. I don't know. Maybe you'll paint before your story comes. You know, Oliver Jeffers, the, the famous children's picture book author, his first picture book came from art. He was actually creating a series of paintings. And when he got to the end, he thought he was creating like a series of illustrative type work that told a story. And then he realized, oh, actually words could go with this. Oh, there could be a book out of this. So for him, Art was the way he came to story. You know, if you had a read a self-help book about how to publish a children's picture book, I doubt it would have said to do a whole lot of paintings and then see if story comes. So do you, like, really honour your own process? And when you get that Ugh, feeling, that is your inner self telling you this is not us and this is not working for us. So, yeah, that's my advice. Do you. <laughs> Well, you do you so beautifully and you have a very wild and beautiful imagination and so much wisdom to share. And I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much, Tabitha. Thank you so much for having me, Cassie. It's been brilliant to talk to you and all the best with your own things too. <laughs>